0: Welcome to The Miller's Tale, Episode 1. Mike Whittaker, and I'll be your host for this, the first episode of The Miller's Tale. I guess we can treat this kind of like the pilot episode of a US TV series. The channel will put it out there, and if the audience like it, then the station will make more. If it doesn't, then I guess we won't. And I guess that as this is the first episode, we should probably start off with a little bit about me. So, I started Wargaming pretty much like, I suspect, an awful lot of people of my generation. Found some books by Don Featherston, Charles Grant, Terence Wise in the library. We had a school war games club. Uh, stop me if you've heard this one before, because I keep seeing it on people's blogs all over the place. It does seem to be the way that everybody seems to have started the hobby in my uh, my generation. Um, so, yeah, I had a school war games club. Um, we did predominantly World War II gaming. Um, we had a set of homegrown rules written by a guy called Tom Farrer that actually were pretty good. Um I wouldn't say they were ahead of their time. They w- they were fairly detailed and and they didn't have any concept of command and control or anything like that. But they were good fun. Um as ever in that era, I guess it was predominantly um FX and Matchbox 20 mil, uh with the odd odd thing from Hassigal. I remember Jack Panzer 4 and a, a Sherman Easy 8 that clearly weren't FX or Matchbox. But predominantly everything was what you could buy over the shelf at the time. Which I guess is true for a lot of people, and kind of informed the kind of games we could play. Uh, We played Bruce Quarry's Napoleonic Rules from uh, one of the FX magazine guides, uh, which I think were a bit controversial at the time, because they uh, actually dared to presume that, for example, um, French troops were better shots than Portuguese troops, for example. So everything had national characteristics. And and there was a great debate raging in various magazines as to whether this was a good thing or not. I mean, I don't think we think I'd think twice about it now, but but for the time, it was it was quite the thing. Uh, we also did American Civil War. There were a set of American Civil War rules in the FX magazine guide as well. There was, if I remember rightly, some GHQ micro armor, um, three hundred scale six mil. Uh, but the other thing we fought an awful lot of was what were affectionately known as Cardboard Ancients. Because you've got to understand this is a Wargames club of impoverished 15 year and 16-year-olds who don't have the money to spend out on minifigs or whoever. Um, so basically we had the Wargames Research group, Group's edition Ancient Rules and an awful lot of Cardboard. And, and I have fond memories of sitting in my dad's study of, of an evening with a ruler and a pen and sitting there and drawing out a series of neat boxes and then hand lettering every single one reg b e h c contos shield repeat times 12 cut out um, add to the pile and then keep going and i must have made heaven knows three or four armies that way um, so you know in the absence of an inkjet printer that was what you did um and i guess that sort of sums up where i started in the hobby i um, i can still remember having read Things like Dom Feathers and skirmish wargames and wargame campaigns from cover to cover to, to the extent that if I pick one up now I can quote you lines of dialogue from the little vignettes at the start of each of the skirmish wargames scenario. And that, so that was that. Uh, went to university, didn't find a wargames club, did find a and d session. So that was pretty much that for the next quite a while. Didn't do any wargaming, did an awful lot of D&D, although we did at one point find the AD&D first edition battle system rules, which are actually quite nice. They do quite a good job of integrating what's a very potentially uneven combat system into a world of mass combat, uh, and they do it remarkably well, considering. Interestingly, um, didn't have any figures, so we used the counters in the box, uh, which uh, I was quite used to. And that was pretty much that for really quite a while, in fact, until four, maybe three or four years ago. Um, and I was, of all things, having lunch at church. Uh, and our assistant vicar happened to mention, and I can't remember how it came up, that he was into wargaming, specifically Warhammer. And I jumped on this and know, it's interesting. Next thing I know, um, we're off down the Wargames Club, which I didn't know we had a Wargames Club in Peterborough, but. Um, Joined in on the Wings of War campaign, bought some Wings of War miniatures, and the rest pretty much snowballed from there. For my sins, I'm now on the committee, which I have to be honest, I quite enjoy. As to what I play now, well, predominantly, but not entirely, I play historicals. Um, I've got several Wab armies. I have an El Cid, Christian Spanish. I have a Dark Ages Saxons. I have some Romans. I have some British. I'm in the middle of assembling a Parthian army. Top of that, I have some 15mm and some 28mm World War II for I Ain't Been Shot on Bolt Action. Um, I'm in the process of being thoroughly converted over to the Gospel of Lard, to Two Fat Lardies rules. Particularly, as I'm sure you've noticed, um, the Dark Ages Dutch Britannia Arm rules, where I'm running a campaign with Andy Hawes from our club, which you can find in lovely glorious detail on my blog. And on top of that... I'll pretty much play anything, with a couple of exceptions. Um, I'm not a massive Games Workshop fan. I don't think that I ever will be. I don't particularly like their business policies. I don't particularly like the way they um, write rules. I don't like the settings. I think the 40K setting is about as dismal as it comes. Uh, And on top of that, you won't catch me playing Flames of War. I think I've been fairly outspoken about that on a number of occasions, because I just don't like the mode of play the system encourages it seems to be very geared towards tournament play uh, the whole scale compression and everything just doesn't work for me and I will say that while I don't like it I'll quite shamelessly use the figures for I Ain't Me chop So that's me and I guess we'll get the ball rolling on the podcast proper after this short break I thought I'd start off each podcast with a collection of the interesting bits of news from the Wargaming world over the past couple of weeks. And I guess there's two main items that I want to cover this time out. Uh, The first of these is the Beyond the Gates of Antares Kickstarter. Now, as you probably know, this is something that was done jointly by Warlord Games and Rick Priestley. And was basically a new sci-fi universe. Um, I guess you could look at it as an answer to Warhammer 40k and Mantic's Warpath. And the real big news is that in the past couple of weeks, the Kickstarter's been cancelled. Now, um, this kind of intrigued me, because I've been following the odd Kickstarter here and there. I bought into the Sedition Wars Kickstarter, as you probably saw on my blog. Uh, I bought into the Kingdom Death um, Kickstarter, mostly because the figures were really, really pretty. Um, But the interesting thing about the Gate of Antares Kickstarter is that Actually, I think they did it wrong. If you look at it, their original target was 300 grand. Now, there have been any number of Kickstarters that have actually made 300 grand. It's not actually that impossible a target. There seems to be quite a fair amount of will and disposable income among the War Games and Miniature Figures community, and it's perfectly possible to raise that kind of money. But the thing I think they did wrong, to a degree, was they actually went for that in one lump sum. Now, if you look at something like Sedition Wars or Kingdom Death or the Reaper Minis one, sure they they made in some cases well over a million um but they did it starting low the the initial target i think for all of those was around about the 20 30k mark uh and they went from there with stretch goals and rather than going for that all in one fell swoop on top of that i never actually really felt drawn in by the setting now now to be fair here uh one of the things i'm currently working on is a campaign setting for the two fat laddies 13 sci-fi rules, which I'm hoping that will be considered worth publishing. The stuff I saw from Beyond the Gate of Antares didn't draw me in, didn't actually make me want to read it, even if I had actually felt that I could. So in a way, I don't know, I'll be interested to see where they go from here, I'll also be interested to see what the fan backlash will be. So that's Beyond the Gate of Antares. The other big piece of news that came out in the last couple of weeks, of course, was the news that Henry Hyde, who's the current editor of Battle Games magazine, and a thoroughly nice bloke, will be taking over the editorship of Miniature War Games with effect from the issue that comes out at Salute. Now, as you can probably tell from the side comment, um, I'm a huge fan of Battle Games, I've met Henry, he's a thoroughly nice bloke. Uh, And I personally have every confidence that the end result is going to be well worth the merger, even though it does result in battle games ceasing to exist as an independent entity. Henry's brief does appear to basically include adding an awful lot of the spirit and feel of battle games into a new and revamped miniature war games. Now, um, I know some folks aren't so happy about this. Uh, I'm not one of them. I should be very, very happy... To pick up a new copy and see what it's like, um, I'm going to be continuing my subscription, and I think it's fairly safe to say that there'll be a subsequent issue of this podcast that will include a review. If you want to know more, then I think there's not much point in me regurgitating uh, content when the best place to go is to Neil Shook's Meeples and Miniatures podcast where episode 101 which is the most recent one is a long interview with Henry in which he explains exactly what's going on far better than I ever could so quite honestly I suggest you go there and hear it straight from the horse's mouth so that's it for the news next up another little piece I'm going to try and make a regular part of this podcast after the short break The other little regular piece I'm going to do in here is something that we're going to call Blog Watch, for want of a better word, and I'm going to be featuring a blog or a podcast or something in, for want of a better word, we'll use that horrible phrase, the blogosphere, that's grabbed my attention either this week or over a longer period of time. For this episode... I'm going to be featuring an absolutely brilliant podcast by a chap from the States called Mike Duncan. And this is The History of Rome. The History of Rome was a weekly podcast that basically covered the history of Rome, obviously enough, from its foundings and the legend of Romulus and Remus, all the way through to what's generally held as being the fall of Rome and the departure of Romulus Augustulus, Um, in 470-whatever A.D. You can tell I was paying attention to the last episode, can't you? What can I say? It's absolutely fantastic. The guy knows his stuff, he has a wonderfully dry sense of humour on occasions, and he presents the whole thing in a very clear, very concise way, without putting too much slant and opinion on it, Um, but without making it so dry that you can't stand it. Uh, basically, it's brilliant. It covers every. I said, it covers the entire history through from the beginning to the end of the Western Roman Empire and if you have any interest at all in Roman history I strongly, 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 and I can't say that enough strongly recommend you go and grab it It comes in episodes that are about 20 minutes to half an hour long uh, which, if you're like me, fits very nicely in your average commute and, as I said, go out and get it. The links are in the show notes For the main section of the podcast each time, I'm going to find something to talk about more in depth. It might be a review, I'm pretty sure there'll be a review of Dux Britannia coming up, or it might be some concept in wargaming, or just something that's caught my interest that I feel the need to talk about. And this time out, what we're going to talk about is the concept of context in Wargaming. Now um, let me explain what I mean. One of the things I find frustrating about things like tournament games and Monday evening down the club pickup games is you do generally have no context by which I mean there's nothing that really sets out your motivation for your troops being there for what their aim is I mean, sure, you can have a scenario of sorts pulled from the rulebook that says force A must capture objective B. But in the end, what you don't have is any real investment, um, which is, I guess, almost a synonym for context in this case, in the battle. Now, there are some systems which do an absolutely brilliant job of getting around this, and the obvious one that leaps to mind, which is that one I just mentioned, is Dux Britanniarum. It has this very nice little system that allows you to set up raids, Um, and the reason they have context is actually that you do, before you start, you do a little bit of pre-preparation for your entire campaign that gives your principal, big men, your main characters' names, a little bit of background, and so on and so forth. And if you're like me, um, or Andy Hawes, then that can set you off into a certain degree of identifying with the little bits of plastic on the table. Now, sure, you can call me sad if you like, but I find that that little bit of context, that little bit of investment, um, does inform how I play the battle. It gives me a real feel for, for what I'm actually doing on the table. In fact, the Dux Britannia system is proof positive that it's actually possible to have pre-battle nerves. Now, of course you can take that to the other extreme, Uh, and there's a couple of examples that have cropped up in the things I've done both at the club and not in the last year or so. One is Carl Fisher's English Civil War campaign. Now, we used the Perfect Captain's Tinker Fox campaign rules for that. And they're rather sweet in that basically you have a map upon which you move, which is pretty old school, I guess. Um, But the way it's all set up is quite simple. There's not a lot of complicated measuring involved. It's done by areas, but it does give you um, reasons to move your troops about the map. If you take it to the full extreme, for example, the map is set up such that Not everywhere, every river is crossable everywhere, so you find yourself defending river crossings. And it means that when you do bring forces to the table, for whatever reason, you know why they're there, you know what they're doing. And even if, as happened the three or four times we had battles, it's been two units of horse and a company of foot taking on two companies of foot and a unit of gallopers, then there's still... You know why the forces are there, you know that there's a larger context to what they do. So again, you have some investment in the battle itself. Now, if you want to take to it, that to extremes, there is the Peninsular War campaign that I'm involved in with Gavin Parnaby. Now, this is this is massive at the other end of things from something like Dux Britanniarum. The whole thing is computer moderated. Um, it relies a degree on trust that the players aren't going to talk to each other um, about things that they couldn't know. Because the computer does a rather nice job of simulating the fog of war, you're each in command of something core-sized, or in some cases even larger, and you don't know where anything else on the map is unless the computer sees fit to tell you because you've run into it. Um, This makes for some interesting moments um, where, for example, I actually lost uh, an entire division of infantry for three or four turns because I couldn't remember where I'd last given it in order, uh, which in some ways sounds entirely realistic but again the thing that happens with that is that when you eventually come to a battle because you've found out that you're in the same location or nearby to some opposing forces again the forces are there there is campaign context to why they're there and there are earth shattering good reasons why you will then take much better care in the fight because you know that there are knock-on effects so that's great there is a problem with that and it comes down to a variable here that we've got context, which is the ability to know why you're fighting, and thus perhaps to have some more investment in why you're fighting. But the trade-off in that is immediacy. There, if you look at something like Dux Britanniarum or the uh, Monday evening down the club pickup game, you know for a fact that you can turn up down the club and you'll get a game. Uh, you might not have any context for that game, other than we pulled it out of the rulebook, but you will have a game. Now, for some people, that's fine. I mean, uh, I don't mind it. I, I freely admit that I go to web tournaments. I will play pickup games of web, pick-up games of any number of things. But on the whole, I have much more fun if I have some some context or some investment in the result of the game. Now, you've got a sort of two ends of an axis here or so it might at first appear, you've got immediacy at one end and you've got context at the other. And is there anything else? Well, it turns out there is. And the best example is probably going to be something like the Lardy's scenario book Blennaville or Bust for I Ain't Been Shot On, which is written by Robert Avery. Uh, That's a campaign book in that you can play it. You will get a different campaign pretty much every time you play through, and there is campaign context for every battle, which depends on the results of previous battles. It's, in some ways, uh, and I'm not meaning to belittle it in any way, it's kind of a pick-your-path-to-adventure kind of um, thing, in that the results of the first battle basically say, if you win, go to battle 2A, if you lose, go to battle 2B, and so on and repeat down the tree until you've got down 5 levels, at which point you have a choice of about 16 battles. Now, this is great because not only does it give you a measure of context in that you know why you're fighting, you know what's happened before, the the scenario briefings are excellent and they tell you why you're doing what you're doing, It also gives you the immediacy of knowing that you can run this campaign, say, over five weeks at the club, you will know exactly what happens each week, you won't have to spend any time preparing or setting up, in in terms of that, you get immediacy. However, this brings into play the third variable, which is the one you lose as a result, and that's freedom. It's kind of the equivalent of an on-rails shooter in uh, 3D gaming parlance, the kind of game where you... The system basically carries you through the scenario and you shoot available targets as they pop up, sometimes with some branching options or not. Fundamentally, each step of the way, you have a binary choice. You either win the battle or you lose the battle, and that governs what happens next. There's no option for you to say, you know, I'd really quite like to try a complete different tactic here. Let's block the Germans at this river bridge and drive down that road in a faint attack, or whatever. You can't do that. But, having said that, it is another data point on our little graph. So, instead of having just the twin parameters of context and immediacy, we've also got freedom. If you look at the three sides of the triangle, though, you can see some quite interesting things. We've already just discussed one of them. If you look along the axis where you have maximum context and maximum immediacy you lose the freedom, and that's the Blennaville or Bust example. You can have maximum immediacy and maximum freedom, otherwise known as you flip open the rulebook, pick out a scenario that you like the look of, uh, and play it straight away, and that's sort of the Encounter Battle Down the Club uh, scenario, um, which gives you no context at all, or you can have the maximal context and maximal freedom, which is something like Uh, Gavin Parnaby's Peninsula campaign, or to a lesser extent the English Civil War campaign we ran down the club, where you have the context, you have the freedom, but you sacrifice the ability to get troops on the table as soon as you walk in the door. Personally, I'm willing to sacrifice quite a bit of that, though, for more context and more freedom. Now obviously that might not be for you. Um, It is for me. I think part of that comes from the long break i took in the middle of my uh gaming career in which i spent playing role-playing games where the whole game is one walking bit of context if you like um and probably why i do things like write long in character narrative pieces for my dux britannia campaign just to sort of tickle the inner writer in me um but i think that in general is is where i'm at um I can understand the tournament players. I can can understand the approach that says, I'd just like to get a game on. But um, equally, I can see how you might want to go to the far end of that extreme. And there are are points in between. I think the interesting thing is that there are points on that sort of tripartite axis of freedom, context, and immediacy um, that are possibly the holy grail. And I suspect the interesting thing is figuring out rule sets that will give you that. Uh, which I must admit I'd be very interested to see. you've been listening to the miller's tale a wargaming podcast by me mike Whitaker. if you've got any comments then you can either leave them as a comment on the blog post that is linked to the podcast or you can drop me an email at the address in the show notes by the way hope to hear from you and with a bit of luck we'll be back again in a month or so for episode two